Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and the chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show is entitled From the Archives to the Classroom with Ancestors Unknown. And my guest, Dana Saxon, is the Executive Director of Ancestors Unknown. This is an international nonprofit organization that introduces knowledge of black history and genealogy to a young audience of predominantly black and Latino students with a mission to inspire their personal and academic success. So let me give a warm welcome to Dana Saxon, to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Dana. Thank you so much, Bernice. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you online tonight. So before we get into talking about Ancestors Unknown as well as Beyond, uh, talking about the archives, why don't you tell us about yourself? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Well, um, I was uh, raised in Philadelphia, so that's where I grew up in the 80s. And back then I had absolutely no intentions of studying, much less teaching history. I was more of, a, of an animal fanatic, and I planned to go to school and study to be a veterinarian. So those were my intentions all along the way. But in the back of my mind, as a young person growing up in Philadelphia, I uh, always had these questions about myself and my identity and where I had come from. And even as a high school student, I, I wrote a story in, a, in an English class about uh, looking for my ancestors and fi- finding absolutely no information um, and feeling frustrated by that. But that always sat in the back of my mind, and I thought that I didn't really have a way to address those questions. I would, you know, just 
just always have that as a lingering background question in my mind. So I went on to college and I uh, pursued a law degree and I thought I would, you know, I, I, I nixed the veterinarian plans and then I pursued a law degree and I ended up working in the nonprofit sector, first in Oakland and then in New York. So I was working with young people and then I started getting more interested in the education field uh, through that work. But at the same time, I was still thinking about my own history, and these lingering questions started to come up more and more. And uh, that led me to start investigating some questions about myself, and then I realized, hey, you know, this is some some work that I think is worth uh, further investigation and potentially could bleed into the work that I'm doing with young people. So I've had somewhat of an indirect route into the work that I'm doing, and it's an unexpected outcome with my uh, career, but it's uh, it's definitely sensible when you see the what was going on in my young person's mind. Right. So at what point, you say, you started uh, developing this interest and in, in finding more about yourself, at what point did you really get into genealogical research? So I was... As I mentioned, I was working in the nonprofit sector um, in an education organization. And at that time, I um, really knew nothing about genealogy research. And Ancestry.com, <laughs> you know, I know a lot of uh, the genealogists that you talk to start their research with Ancestry. And it, it is a, a perfect entryway because I started to see the advertisements um, on uh, online and on the TV or whatever, and I started to think more in a contrary way, like, wow, as a black person in the U.S., I know, you know, being, as I said, contrary, I know that this isn't relevant to me. And the work that I'm doing with these young people, I know that the young people that I'm serving and that I care about the most, they have no access to this information on Ancestry.com, even though I knew nothing about it. So my first uh, entry into it was to prove that there was no information about my family. Like, oh, if I try to find something, I'm sure it won't be possible because my ancestors were enslaved and our history was erased and all of these, uh, you know, untruths about black history that I had internalized. So I thought, let me just go online and prove that this is true and and then be angry you know, for the rest of the day. But I logged in, and it took less than an hour before information started unraveling about my family history, and I started seeing names that I recognized, and I was learning new information, and that planted the seed, and it it really quickly picked up into a research addiction and changed my life, quite frankly, just, just from that little bit of an instigation. Wow, as that's you know, I I did a webinar the other day called uh, "Without a Hint, There Is No Story." So I guess you did pick up a hint when you yeah. found some information. And so tell us where did this information take you? So the first bit of information that I found, I really think it may have been the very first document that I found on Ancestry.com. And again, I just want to remind you that I knew nothing about genealogy research, so I was really just a novice kind of poking around and, and random things were coming up. But the first thing that I found was a census record with my grandfather's name, uh, Thomas Warren Long. So my grandfather was in Jacksonville, Florida. I knew him very well. I knew his name. And it wasn't difficult to recognize him. 
Um, and I confirmed it with my mother, and, you know, we were sure that I was on the right track. Okay, that was that was the first step. And then I started following the census records, you know, going back every 10 years. And in Florida, there were a couple of additional state census uh state census records from uh, 1935 and 1885. So I was able to use all of those census records to trace back to my grandfather's parents and then his parents, parents, and then and then so on. So the census records took me um, quite far, and then that led me to Civil War records, uh, death, death records, uh, some marriage records, quite a lot. And then from there, I started to learn more about the research process. I started looking up books and figuring out how to perfect my research strategy. Because once I got into it, I didn't want to do it wrong. So I was led to other resources online, uh, like Fold3 with the uh, military records and FamilySearch.org, which is great for tons of unexpected results. Um, and some newspaper, online newspapers, it just it really unfolded to me so much information about Thomas Warren Long, my, my grandfather's family and his ancestors, or, you know, my ancestors on that side, as well as other sides of the family. My mother's, uh, this is on my mother's side, so my mother's father's uh, family is Thomas, and then his, her mother's side of the family was also unfolding very interesting stories. And then I was working really hard on my father's family as well. So I was doing... Like, which is not necessarily recommended, but at the very beginning of my research, I was just looking for everyone. Okay, and so you you started your research, and most of that research was online. Did you have any oral history or any documents in your home to help you with your research? Yeah, you know, I wish that I had more. The one most valuable resource that I had and continue to have is my mother. Uh, unfortunately, she's the oldest living person on uh, uh, on her line um, of the family in terms of direct uh, direct line. So my grandparents are no longer living on either side of the family. My father is no longer living. So I didn't have anyone to talk to who had historical memory other than my mom. And she was relying on stories that she heard from her mother and her father and her memories of her grandparents. But uh, in terms of photos, there were some some photos in my father's uh, family archive, like his mother had saved quite a number of photos. So that helped after I started doing the research, I was able to put some names to faces, but nothing was really labeled or nothing was clear. Uh, and when I was growing up, I knew nothing about anyone that I was uh, researching as an adult. So even the information that we had archived as a family, we weren't really talking about it. So I was starting from a very, uh, very little knowledge point. Like I was really starting from scratch with this research. Right. We have uh, one of the chatters is saying that she can relate to what you're saying. Mm. So I know that it's a common so with, challenge. Yes, it is it is a common challenge for many people. And so you you went online and did it sound like you you've taught yourself uh basic genealogical research uh strategies. So where did you go once you had 
identified and found documents online. What else did you do? So I went really gung-ho with it, and uh, less than a year into the research, I planned a genealogy research tour. So my mother and I hopped in a rental car, and we went down south, because I was living in New York at the time, and my mother was living in Chicago. So we met up in Georgia, where uh, where quite a bit of my family roots uh, begin. And so we started in Georgia and went into the local archives there and found a, a, a number of records um, through the probate office there. And that helped uh, fill in a couple of blanks that, you know, the information wasn't available online, so it was important to do that in person. And then we kept driving down south, and we ended up in Jacksonville, which is where uh, the most substantive part of the family history is. That's also where my mother was born. So uh, with my mother, we drove through the streets where she grew up, and I, I got some of her firsthand accounts of uh, stories of her mother and her father, and we looked at using a lot of the census records and other information that had addressed inf- the addresses of the ancestors and some of their life details. So we followed some of their footsteps and took tons of photos, took a lot of video of uh, where the ancestors used to walk and how, you know, where they lived. And uh, that that meant to me even more than the documents because it was able to bring a lot of it to life. You know, instead of just seeing their names and the dates, and it felt very academic up until that point. But then I, when I was standing in the places where they used to stand, that that's what took my research and, and my love for this work to the next level. And then after that, after I uh, finished the in-person tour of the South, and, and I have to be frank, I did hit some roadblocks there. It wasn't like it was just one big open book and everything was clear. Jacksonville, um, we, we, we didn't have much success with finding more documents in the local archives in Jacksonville on that visit. But it did still, you know, create fire, and I, I knew I wanted to find more. And after that, I had lots of success uh, looking for uh, documents at the National Archives, um, looking at uh, pension records for one of my ancestors, and or actually several of my ancestors had pension records at the National Archives. The Schomburg Center was another valuable resource. They had some um, some documents that weren't available online that I was able to find in New York uh, by going to their center and, and researching. So, yeah, I was able to combine the online research with some in-person efforts and, and go from there. And even now, uh, I live overseas now, and I'm still able to take advantage of online resources. Uh, looking for, I'm still I'm constantly doing research, so there's no limit to what I feel like I can still find. So it's something that's a never-ending story here, <laughs> or a never-ending exactly. process. <laughs> Never any so, process because every time I look at my tree, there's still a roadblock. Like, oh, I still got to look for this person or I still have to look for this document. So I always have asterisks of, you know, next time I go to Florida or, you know, this archive I need to see in person or this person I need to call. And it mentioned that I made a lot of phone calls to churches and to um, local historical societies. So that's also been very helpful, just calling people and asking questions. So 
There's so many asterisks on my family tree that hopefully in 20 years I'll have answers to. Well, you mentioned earlier about Thomas Long. You said you, you your grandfather was named Thomas Long, and that's kind of where you started your research. So what did you uncover about your father's, your grandfather's father? Okay. Um, I'm glad you asked because this is one of my favorite stories. And Thomas Long, my grandfather and, and the, the ancestors before him, inspire me every day. So um, I'm always happy to share that, that story. So Thomas Warren Long, my grandfather, uh, as I mentioned, grew up in Florida. And my mother uh, confirms, I, I certainly didn't know anything about his uh, family before him, but my mother confirms also that he never really spoke about the family history or anything about where the family came from or just there was no anecdote about the family's history coming through my grandfather. So going through the archives, I uncovered this, the information about his father, whose name wasn't new to me. I did know his name, and he died when my mother was very young. So she she knew him um, a little bit. Uh, so this wasn't brand new information, but I did find his name, which was Charles Sumner Long in the census records, and with him I found his siblings and his parent. He was living with his parents in, you know, that was let's say the the 1900 census. So the the or even the 1880 census. He was living with his parents. So this was all new information. So once I hit that point when I found my great grandfather as a child in the census records, everybody was new to me. Um, and Charles Sumner Long. Uh, was a minister in the A&E Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church in Florida. So I saw him listed as an adult, uh, as a minister in the A&E Church. And then when I found him living with his father as a child, his father was also listed as a minister in the A&E Church. So that was another piece of the puzzle. Say, so, okay, clearly, you know, we knew that Charles Sumner was a minister, but now we know that he was in some ways, following in his father's footsteps. And uh, that was remarkable in itself. I would have been satisfied, great, super happy to know that information. And also just knowing that he's a minister in the church, that was a clue. You know, we could look for church records and information about the AME church in Florida in general. Maybe that will give us just some context about what their lives were like and what they were doing. So that was what my plan was, but I just kept going. As I mentioned on the census, I just was chipping away every year uh, with the census records. So I kept going back with his parents. And I should have mentioned that when I found his father, Charles Sumner Long's father, when he was living with his father, his father's name was also Thomas Warren Long, which, as I mentioned, is the name of my grandfather. So now I'm learning that not only was Charles Sumner Long following in his father's footsteps as a minister, he also named his child, my grandfather, after his father. So this was all coming together. Wow, not only, you know, were they, you know, living a, a very proud life, but his, my, my great-grandfather was very proud of his father. Like, he really understood and respected his father's legacy. And just to be clear, his Charles Sumner Long's father is my great great grandfather. 
So uh, now I'm looking more into the life of the first Thomas Warren Long. This is my great-great-grandfather. And I started to investigate, you know, he's a minister in the AME Church. This was about in 1900, 1910, both of those years, he's listing himself as a minister. But then in the 1880 census, uh, it's a bit different. Uh, Now, this is 15 years after the Civil War. He's living in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, You know, 10 years later, he's a minister in A&E Church. But in 1880, he lists himself as a state senator. And that was, I thought, a typo. Or I I thought it was a mistake. Like, wait, how could it be possible for my ancestor to have been a state senator, a Florida state senator, in 1880, 15 years after the Civil War, when I'm almost certain that he was born into slavery, you know, although I didn't know all of this information yet. Um, I just pretty much assumed that he was born into slavery at that point. So I just kept going, and I thought, wow, you know, if he's listed as a state senator in 1880, and then later he becomes a minister in the AME Church, there has to be more information beyond what's here on Ancestry.com. There's got to be just some, somewhere there's got to be documented information about Thomas Warren Long's life. So I kept looking, and uh, indeed, I, I confirmed that he uh, was in the state senate in Florida for several years, uh, from, I believe, 1873 to 1880. Um, and prior to that, uh, he was indeed enslaved in Jacksonville. So he had quite a remarkable journey between 1865 to 1880 to get him to this point. Uh, so that was the, that was the story uh, that I was most dedicated to uncovering uh, and uh, really wanting to understand how a man can go from, uh, you know, Slavery and and you know obviously that's the definition of oppression and, and lack of opportunity to creating all of these opportunities for himself and for his family and for his family to have followed in his footsteps in such a way. So uh, it's it was just quite incredible. Um, now I can keep going. I don't want to. Well, I that I mean to. that is an incredible story. I mean just to think <laughs> that you grew up and you didn't know this. It, that is that's the most frustrating thing about it, you know. I, I as I mentioned earlier, I grew up always thinking I have no history, and history class was never interesting to me, and this is not relevant to me. And to have had this incredibly rich history in my family, so close, and to have known my my grandfather and have spoken his name so many times, and to have not known who he was named after. It's very frustrating. Obviously, it's better late than never to learn this information, but I do wish I had known it as a child. And I wish my mother yes. had known it. We, we, we all regret that um, my grandfather didn't share some of these stories. Right. And the, the, the fact that you didn't have any papers or any information in your home uh, that would at least provide you with a hint that your great-grandfather nope. was a state senator. Yep, nope, not even a little bit. And also it was remarkable because uh, Thomas Warren Long, where he was enslaved in Jacksonville was basically the same area where my where my mother grew up. So when we did that 
tour of Jacksonville, what she remarked was, this is incredible that I used to like basically walk down the street and it's very close to where TW would have also walked. And she had no idea that she was walking in his footsteps, you know. And wow. it's just such a missed opportunity, um, you know, for for young people, especially in that era in, in Florida. She was growing up in, in the Jim Crow era, so to to feel this sense of oppression but then not know that we came from such dignity and not that not that we weren't dignified during Jim Crow era, but I just mean that PW was able to hold uh political office and have an entire community, black community, um, empowered with uh, his success and the church and, you know, all of this incredible stuff that was happening in the 1800s that black folks, uh, and I don't don't deny that this was intentional, that black folks in, uh, you know, the next generation and the generation after had forgotten. And that information was, I would say, deliberately erased to disempower us, because if we did know that we had this incredible story in our family and all, all of our families, I'm speaking for not just myself at this point, if we knew about all of these incredible stories, then we would be so much more powerful, you know, or we would know our power and we wouldn't um, feel this sense of uh, absence or this, this sense of lack when we think about our identities. Uh, so I don't think Right, an and there's a comment coming out of the chat uh, and it's from Angela, and she's say, stating that it is amazing how many stories of empowerment, empowerment were lost to generations yes. that came after ancestors who accomplished so much. Yes. And that's basically yes. what you're saying, yes. You know, yeah, she, there's exactly. also another comment about uh, kind of like the former Civil War soldiers could not talk about their accomplishments in the Civil War. In the Civil mm-hmm. War, you mm-hmm. know, they were on the winning side, but they watched Confederate monuments pop up and landowners being given their power back, and th- they couldn't say anything. So it, exactly. it is it is an amazing, amazing uh experience that you have and you now can share that experience with others well we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about ancestors unknown in the classroom so quick break and we'll be right back
Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to Dana Saxon discuss From the Archives to the Classroom with Ancestors Unknown. So, Dana, tell us how did your genealogy journey motivate you to look into the whole educational arena? Yeah, so as I mentioned, uh, I was already working in the nonprofit education sector when I started doing my own genealogy research. So I was very passionate about education and passionate about the success of young people, especially in communities of color, um, well before I started doing my genealogy research. But once I uncovered this information about my family history and started to realize the abundance of information that's available that so many of us aren't aware of or in some cases take for granted, um, I thought that this could be the missing piece of, you know, what, what we're lacking in classrooms when a lot of people express frustration about the failures of history education, that history doesn't address black history in the U.S. in particular, um, or people of color aren't represented well or accurately in the traditional history books. So I thought, what if we could introduce this type of research, this type of genealogical knowledge, personal family history knowledge, to young people as students when they're learning about world history, when they're learning about the, the events that do show up in the traditional history books, what if they could place their ancestors in the context of of those historical times? I thought that that could be the thing that opens up the, the topic for a new audience and, and could really revolutionize history education. So no one was doing it this way, and, and um, I thought that I could fill in that gap. Right. So tell us just what is Ancestors Unknown? So Ancestors Unknown is a program specifically for schools, uh, primary and secondary schools in the U.S. and abroad, and we provide the schools with curriculum that introduces the students to the process of genealogy research. So um, it's, it's a combination. So they do genealogy research as well as untold histories. So we're teaching the kids about the lesser-known stories about people of color, the marginalized histories that, that aren't typically introduced. So uh, the teachers are, are really uh, providing a nuanced history education. Um, but in terms of the genealogy curriculum, they start with 
identity inquiries. They're, they're thinking about uh, the question, who am I first? Uh, where does my identity come from? How is it changing? What influences it? Who defines it? How do I define it? Questions like that. And then they move on to oral history interviews where they're led to identify someone either in their family or in their community to interview and um, prepare for the interview and so on. And then from that point, once they've completed their interview, they are uh, guided through the process of constructing their family tree and uh, filling in the gaps with both online and in-person research. The coolest part, I think, of it is is the uh, piece where once the students are really researching their families and they get into the complex pieces of genealogy research where even expert genealogists will hit roadblocks. Uh, so Ancestors Unknown provides the students across the board, no matter where they're located, with that support that can help them further their research uh, so that no one feels like they're, uh, you know, swimming in this gigantic sea of archives. We want to make sure that they see some success in their research process instead of frustration. So how, and and just share with us a little bit more about how did you uh, launch or where did you first launch Ancestors Unknown in the Classroom? Yeah, that's a great question because it's a bit surprising. <laughs> I, I, originally when I started to do my research, as I mentioned, I was in New York. But in the process, once I decided to do this work and I, I knew what my next step was going to be, I decided to move abroad. I moved to the Netherlands uh, in 2011. And I did that with the intention of pursuing a degree that would help me uh, to inform the research and the, the need for this type of organization. So I moved to Amsterdam and I was researching the significance of family history knowledge for people who descend from survivors of slavery. Uh, now that might sound like, like it doesn't make sense that I would do that in the Netherlands, but the Netherlands has a very large black population and most of those um, most of those people are coming from former Dutch colonies, uh, whether it's Suriname in South America or parts of the Caribbean. So there are so many black folks in the Netherlands who have similar challenges to uh, what we face here in the U.S. as black Americans uh, with lack of knowledge about our family histories and lack of resources and families not talking about history and all of those questions just being shut down by great-grandparents. So they were having the same experience over there, and my research was quite eye-opening that this is a global problem. This is not an American phenomenon that we don't know our histories. This is an African diaspora problem. So my research took me to Suriname, where I was working in the archives and working with some young people there and helping them do their research. Now, that was all part of my my academic research, but it was also the pilot of Ancestors Unknown. I was basically trying to see how do young people respond to this work? Does it make sense to, to work with teenagers in the archive? Are they going to hate me <laughs> through this process, or will they feel enriched? And what I found was they were so inspired, and, and they loved the work. Their eyes were lighting up every time they saw a familiar name. 
similar to how I felt when I found my ancestors in the archives. They were having the same experiences, but yet they were 13 and 14. And then at the same time, while, while that was developing in Suriname, I also was contacted by a school in Charleston, South Carolina. And it was a high school in, in Charleston, South Carolina. So they were looking for innovative curriculum, looking to try something new. And I said, well, I'm starting out this new program, and, you know, it's, it's not refined. It's certainly rough around the edges, but let's try it out. So in addition to piloting the project in Suriname, I also piloted uh, another project in, in Charleston. So they ran simultaneously, and, and then it basically grew from there. And it's expanded from Charleston now into Chicago and Philadelphia and also in Amsterdam. I have quite a few uh, partnerships developing there as well. So it's uh, growing. It's still a young organization, and still trying to find our footing and since it is something that's very new and this isn't something that teachers or school leaders are used to seeing as a service, um, it's not necessarily like doors are, you know, wide open, but I'm certainly knocking them down and I'm certainly trying to show people in all cities that this is uh, an important an important effort. It's something that we need to be that we need to be focusing on, um, and trying to show evidence that through these pilot projects we see that it works. And yeah, so I'm I'm dedicated to seeing this in every city in the U.S. and beyond. So how is this curriculum being uh, integrated into the mainstream curriculum of the various? school districts that you have piloted the program? So the most important thing that I've had to do is prove to the teachers that it's, it is uh, in line with the core curriculum, that, that the Common Core, you know, they have all of these standards that they're trying to, to meet, and they have, you know, so many requirements, so many tests, so many, so many priorities that teachers are focusing on. So they're already stressed out and you know they I don't want to put anything new on them or something that is uh, creating a tax on teachers. So once I'm proving to them that these are academic exercises that the skills that they're learning through ancestors unknown are advancing uh, the goals for common core. So I can I can show them how it aligns with common core. Then it makes it a lot more it makes a lot more sense for them to introduce it into their classrooms. The classes that it's typically incorporated into are social studies and in some cases English. So mm-hmm. for the English classes, they're using it as an opportunity to write. Uh, we do a lot of journaling and you know providing the students with writing prompts that relates to their ancestry research. Um, and just the, the process of interviewing and um, research, all, all of these uh, inquiries that they're doing with their genealogy research is relevant to English, but even more so it's relevant to their social studies uh, curriculum. So there's really no doubt once a teacher digs into the process and what, you know what's involved with genealogy research, it's not difficult to, for them to see that, that it aligns with their goals in the classroom. 
And is this a, a course, uh, a, a semester course, or just a two-week type of of endeavor? Just please tell us. I mean, just how much time is actually spent with this? Yeah, great question. So it does depend. My ideal scenario is that the teachers spend at least a full semester on the project because it takes time. As you know, as we all know, genealogy research is, as we mentioned, it's a lifelong thing. It's not something that you can do in a week. But if you spend at least four months on it, then you can get a sense of of the richness. And, and you know, you might not have every question answered, but you can you can address them and you can spend quality time on the oral history interview, quality time on the research and filling in some of the gaps and understanding what the brick walls are that you're facing. But in some cases, I'm, I'm not unrealistic. I know, as I mentioned, teachers are super busy, and it's not always practical for an entire semester to be dedicated to something that's not in the traditional curriculum. So in those cases, uh, we have had um, instances where teachers are doing it, doing the Ancestors Unknown project for just a month. Uh, so they do an abbreviated version of the research. Um, and in some cases, uh, you know, the, the minimum, I'll just do a one-time workshop for students. And obviously they're not working with the full curriculum, but we, you know, hopefully inspire them and plant the seed. And maybe in following years they'll, uh, they'll be ready to dedicate a full semester to the project. So it does, it's a range. I try to be as flexible as possible. Um, but as I mentioned, my preference is when they spend at least a semester. Right. Well, we have a, a question out of the chat room. Can this uh, program be used in homeschool programs? It certainly can. I, I Honestly, I haven't worked with a homeschool program yet other than a uh, workshop that I did in Washington, D.C., actually. Um, I think that was a year or two ago. Uh, but... Yeah, I haven't had a formal partnership or collaboration with homeschoolers, but it certainly could. The, the curriculum is available online, so uh, there's no limit to um, the format, you know, how, how it's introduced. As long as there's an Internet connection and the students can interact, whether it's on a computer or an iPad, uh, yeah, yeah, there's no reason why a homeschooler couldn't do it. In fact, I think that's a great way to do it. Yes, and there's a, a comment coming out from Joe Hunter, and he's stating that genealogy in the classroom is the epitome of common core. They do original yes. research, and they're doing research that many don't do until grad school. Yep, yep, exactly, exactly. And it's it's just taken for granted. It's something that it seems so obvious you know, why wouldn't they research their own families? They're doing this research about the quote-unquote founding fathers. So, you know, like why not do the research about their own families, you know, and learn those skills in a way that they can personally relate to and then feel more passionate about it. I think that the skills are um, transferable, so you may as well apply them to yourself. (laughs) Right. Now, there's a question coming out of the chat about the curriculum. Now, who developed the curriculum? I I worked in partnership with an educator I have um, 
on my team a uh, professional uh, teacher, educator, uh, who worked with me to do the initial iteration of the history, the untold history curriculum. Uh, so she and I worked together on that, and then I did most of the genealogy research curriculum based on my own uh, research experience. And now I'm working with a number of partners in the Netherlands to revise and rework it and make sure that it is uh, flexible across the board and an international to an international audience. So it's a constantly evolving curriculum with a number of uh, voices reflected at this point. But the original iteration uh, was uh, done by myself and my curriculum writer. Her name is Dusharm Archer. Now, there's a, a really interesting question coming out of the chat room, and this is from James, okay. and he wants to know, how do you motivate parents of African descent to not give up on family history for their kids. And then he goes on to state that he has a friend whose son was recently given such an assignment. And the friend mm. told his son that their family history was impossible to research. Mm. Yeah, and I understand that sentiment. Obviously, I had that belief myself. It's not true, but it, it's a common belief. In those cases, and this is part of what Ancestors Unknown is about, it's up to the young person, it's up to the student to challenge that belief, to raise the questions with their parents and their grandparents and start asking more questions and, and, and exposing the parent through this Ancestors Unknown curriculum where we're providing the students with the tools to do the research and the resources, you know, like, you know, they know which websites they can check out. They know which libraries to visit locally. These are bits of information that the students will now have that they can say to a parent, hey, you know, it's not impossible to research our family history. I learned in class today that uh, FamilySearch.org has the Freedmen's Bureau records, uh, you know, digitized, and we can pull them up right here for free. So uh, if a young person has more information than not only could they challenge their parents' beliefs, but that also empowers a young person to take ownership of that history and take ownership of reclaiming that history. Because although in my case, uh, you know, my grandparents' uh, generation, you know, they, they didn't have the tools, they certainly didn't have the Internet uh, on their side to reclaim our histories, my parents' generation just didn't even know what they didn't know. So that, you know, they weren't empowered to reclaim our histories. But I see myself as I have the responsibility to reclaim the history and to start documenting it and start rewriting it and start challenging these, these notions about the fact that we don't have histories. So if I can empower 16-year-olds or 13-year-olds to similarly challenge these, these, these beliefs um, and challenge their parents, to start asking the questions and start answering the questions, then I think that's uh, part of the charge. So, indeed, I, I understand the question that, you know, we don't want the parents to give up and we want the parents to um, be the ones encouraging the students. But in these cases, I think it, I think in some cases it's necessary that the student has to 
to be the one to lead the charge. Right, and we have a comment. Uh, there's several comments, but one, and this is from Susan, she says she has nieces, and they they are given assignments in class to share about their ancestors, and they turn to her. And so she remembered when she was in the sixth grade, she had that assignment to share with her classmates, and she didn't know as much as she uh, knows now about what she's mm-hmm. sharing. And so I have a question for you, though. What challenges have you faced with bringing ancestors unknown into the classroom? Uh, do you have another extra hour? <laughs> no, I'll I'll try to keep it brief. I, I it's it's funny that you say challenges um, because it's not necessarily about the the work. It's not necessarily about. Um, ancestors being valued or or even the fact that schools see the importance of teaching untold histories that's i expected that to be the challenge the challenge though is that schools don't have the time or the resources uh and i'm making this um available as cheap as possible and, and you know it's it's a nonprofit organization but obviously Funding is necessary. So, you know, the biggest challenge when I'm going to a school and I'm saying, you know, this, there's a cost involved with bringing this curriculum into your classroom, a uh, nominal cost, but it's sometimes prohibitive for a school that has such a small budget they can barely afford the teachers, you know. So, and then, and then on top of that, there's so much bureaucracy and, you know, just getting into the right the right office or the right person to to make the approval who can say that, yes, we can dedicate this time for, you know, these certain number of months for this program. Um, knocking down these doors as a new program, doing something brand new in a different way, and at the same time I got black people, black and brown people in the very center of it, uh, you know, it, it's not like everybody's just, paving away for me. I, I definitely have to uh, do a lot of hard work to make sure uh, I'm, I'm getting in the door and, and getting an opportunity to work with the students that I want to work with and the students who need this the most. It's a really big challenge. It's, it's not, it's, I'm not saying that in a way that it's not a worthwhile challenge, but it's certainly not um, the easy road that I've chosen. Well, how do you introduce it to, if you get into the right office, how is it introduced mm-hmm. so that others will say, yes, we definitely want this program in our school? Well, what I like to point to is what's lacking. What, you know, how can I help your teachers succeed? How can I help your students succeed? When I'm looking at the students' test scores uh, in a specific city, I see that students are, are not achieving well in their social studies testing. And I see that students are struggling in English, for example. So I'll point that out, and, and then I'll explain that, you know, there's a reason why students aren't engaging effectively in the classroom. And there are reasons why their academic achievement, uh, why, why, why there are these disparities between 
black and brown students and, and white students, their, their counterparts, their white counterparts are doing so much better. Why is that? And it, for so many reasons, we can point to students not seeing themselves in the curriculum. We can point to students checking out in the classroom. I mean, I was, I was an example in history uh, specifically. I checked out. You check out when you feel like it has nothing to do with you. So I, te- I explained to the school leaders and the administrators that it's important for all students to see themselves represented in, in curriculum. And it's important for young people to feel empowered uh, about their histories as well as their own identities. And their future path is paved in many ways based on the path that's gotten them to where they are, but yet your students don't know that. So I can provide you with the curriculum, the, the easy steps, to bring history to life for your students and help them to engage with lessons that mean something to them and that could potentially change their lives. Uh, so as I mentioned, that that's not a difficult sell. Like usually when I have that conversation, at the point when I'm having that conversation, most school leaders get it. I, I rarely uh, have to explain too far beyond that, they'll often say, yes, our kids need this. Like, yes, our, our kids are struggling. They're checking out. They're distracted by the social challenges that any young person deals with. But those are exacerbated when the young person feels disconnected from, from their history and their identities and, and they don't feel proud about where they come from. School leaders get that, and they, they see that challenge in their, their students. So, um yeah, so as long as I'm able to have that conversation and I, I bring myself a little soapbox that I step on <laughs> to get started, and once I can do that, then, then it's much easier to go forward. So, Dana, you mentioned yeah. costs. So what yeah. are they buying? And I mean, what is the cost? So the cost for the full curriculum, you have access to the online curriculum as well as the resources and training and volunteer support, that's $1,500 for a school year or the semester, however long they um, implement the, the curriculum. Um, there are other layers to it. Um, as I mentioned, some, in some cases I'll just do a workshop or, you know, we can abbreviate the program. Uh, but for the most part, I want people to take advantage of the full curriculum for, and the full program for $1,500. So are you training the teachers and taking them through the research process so that they can continue, or do you actually put a physical person in the school? Oh, great question. No, the teachers are given the training. Yes, they're trained. But the curriculum is so straightforward that the teachers basically can open up a lesson and say, okay, we're working on the oral histories. Uh, They get everything that they need to do the lesson from start to finish. They have a warm-up, they have vocabulary, they have uh, in-class exercises and fun, some fun activities, some more challenging activities, homework assignments. Uh, as I mentioned, there's always a journal. There's always an ancestor honor where we honor one specific ancestor that's relevant to the lesson that we've just covered. So they have everything that they need 
And so even if a teacher is not experienced in genealogy research, which is, which, you know, is mostly, most often the case, they don't, they don't need to be to, to use this curriculum. And in some cases, the teachers will even do their own research alongside the students because they're just as interested in uncovering their history as the students are. So they follow along with the lessons with the students. I mean, obviously, not to the students' knowledge. Sure. And then there's a question, is that 1500 per school or 1500 per student? Oh, no. Oh, gosh. Fifteen hundred per school. Okay, per school, and then you do a teacher training um, mm-hmm. program, and you have, and they have the curriculum right there. So, is it a box? Is it a package? I mean, what? Do, so they get this. What? What is the get? Yeah. <laughs> it's digital. Digital. So, uh, it's oh, accessible okay. for the students. In a lot of cases, like in Chicago, as well as Charleston. The students have iPads uh, um, in the classroom. So, so the students are able to interact with the curriculum directly with their iPad, uh, or if not, the teacher will uh, project it, you know, on the if they have, if they have a smart classroom or just a projector. Uh, but, yeah, the curriculum is all online and easily accessible for both the students and the teachers. So there's a, another question. Is there a textbook? Uh, you just said that most of the stuff is accessible on, accessible online. Mm-hmm. There are plans in the works to develop a printed workbook for the students uh, to use alongside the online curriculum. But as it currently exists, it's just online. Now, some teachers do prefer to print stuff out. So if they want to, you know, print out, print out one of the worksheets that we have online. That's certainly possible. But we don't provide, uh, we don't provide books at this stage. Uh, you know, that would be great. I like to say that it's environmentally friendly since we don't print everything. But I'm sure that, you know, once resources are available, we will expand um, to, to more printed materials as well. Okay. So then, so what are your future plans? I mean, you mentioned some of the areas, that, uh, some of the cities where you have the curriculum, but w- where do you want to go with this now? Oh, I I just have so many dreams, Bernice. I, <laughs> I want the program, as I mentioned, to be in, you know, as many cities as possible throughout the U.S. And throughout the African diaspora, I think that this is such an important message and such an important process for young people to experience through Caribbean uh, and South America. As I mentioned, I started this in Suriname, so I want to go back to Suriname. I'm not currently working there anymore. So I want to go back to Suriname. I want to expand to Brazil. I want to translate it into different languages. I'm currently working on translating it into Dutch because it's going to be um, in a number of Dutch schools in the Netherlands. So very very actively working on translating that uh, starting um, well, right now we're in the process of translating it so it can be in a number of languages beyond Dutch and English uh, in years to come so I, I would like Ancestors Unknown to be a household name so that people associate this with you know young people pursuing their family histories and young people of color uh, throughout the world uh, you know in in classrooms 
talking their ancestors' names and and making making their ancestors proud. So, yeah, worldwide revolution. That's my plan. Okay, and then we have a, a, a comment. How do you modify the program with different school systems, different record-keeping systems, different countries? Well, that's what takes time. So as it is right now, it's it hasn't been too challenging for teachers to adapt. Uh, and I make a few adjustments to localize lessons uh, to make them relevant to for example, local archives and make sure that the students know locally where they access resources. Uh, but for the most part, it's been pretty standard across the board. With the adjustments in the Netherlands, that's where I'm really seeing the amount of time that needs to be dedicated to customizing and localizing it on an international level because the histories are very different and the stories all need to be told. So. It's important for me to introduce uh, local experts into the process, which is why I'm partnering with uh, local educators and uh, professionals who are, who are helping me revise and, and adjust the curriculum as necessary. So as we expand to different countries, I'll always have to embed a number of months, half a year, to make sure it's up to speed before we're really ready for, for new schools. But as it is in the U.S., it's, it's pretty easy to to make those shifts and jump into to new districts um, as we go along. Yes, and we have a, a comment, and it's from Cecilia, and she's stating that you need a team of visionaries to carry this on and forward. You have big dreams. So tell us mm-hmm. about the team of people that you're working with right now. So the the team in the Netherlands is uh, really what has introduced me. As I mentioned, I live I live in the Netherlands, so this is what's uh, my main day to day work at this point, is incorporating this into schools in the Netherlands, uh, in addition to the U.S. schools. So the team over there in, includes um, educators and folks who have access to the schools uh, and funding and people who know on the ground, uh, you know, the, the best contacts and the best ways to get this into, in front of the right people. So, yeah, I've, I've basically uh, developed a team um, in this. They're not necessarily all genealogists. There's some, there's some genealogy experts in there, but the, the biggest piece that I need to complement um, my knowledge or my lack of knowledge is education. So, the you know the teachers are the ones who are adding the most input and giving me the most feedback, uh, and then we're planning to incorporate this into primary schools in the Netherlands in the coming in the coming year in 2017. So we're also going to be working with a number of primary school teachers who will be providing feedback uh, and input. And, you know how can we adjust what is formally a secondary level curriculum into primary school level. So, yeah, I try to have a team of uh, experts that represent different levels or different types of expertise to complement each other. In the U.S., um, it's similar, uh, It's similar, but it's just a little bit less dedicated at this point because when we first started, as I mentioned, I worked with an educator to help me develop the curriculum um, in its first iteration. So 
she's still on the team and we're still, you know, constantly working together and, and making sure that it's uh, revised and always staying relevant. And uh, here's another question about your uh, your status. Are you a nonprofit organization? Nonprofit organization with a 501c3 fiscal sponsor. So that just means that okay. when we do fundraising, another organization helps us with the grant-making process. But, yeah, we are <laughs> a nonprofit based in the U.S. So how can the uh, listening audience learn more about Ancestors Unknown? Yeah, I, and I hope they do. <laughs> Uh, we have a website, ancestors-unknown.org, and there's information there, obviously, uh, you can look up. But the uh, best way, if you have questions for me specifically, I'm happy uh, to receive emails um, at D-A-S-A-X-O-N, so D-A-Saxon, at ancestors-unknown.org. Okay, and do you have, yeah, any any parting words so that others can learn more about what you're doing? It it sounds just fascinating uh, to even think that we could see this in all of the schools and what it would mean to the students as well as the parents. Yeah, I mean, I... um I do hope that we see it in in all of the schools, and I hope that parents and teachers and commu- members of the community are inspired by young people starting to inquire about their histories and about where they come from. I think that you know this this rising generation is going to face a number of challenges, right? You know, this is a this is a rough time that we're in and I think that if if nothing else we should all be confident about who we are and about where we're coming from so that our foundations aren't rocked. So I just really am you know, I'm dedicated to inspiring as many young people as possible to be strong and to be confident and to be proud. And I think that starts in so many ways with our family histories. And, you know, what we can't necessarily get at home just for lack of knowledge and and lack of understanding about how these documents work or how this research process works. So many people don't know it. That can still be done in the classroom. And it's not too late. Like, we we can make shifts to the way education works, and we can adjust what young people are learning about who they are and where they come from. We just have to take those first steps, though. I'm glad that Ancestors Unknown can be part of that puzzle to start addressing these challenges and, and these gaps in education. I don't think it's a complete solution, um, but I think it's a very important piece of the solution. That's right. Well, thank you so much. Let me just clarify, though. Your website is www.ancestors-unknown.org. Is that correct? It's not slash. It's actually a hyphen. So dash. A hyphen. Okay. Hyphen uh, unknown. Okay. And then there's another question. Which African ethnic groups are found among the Netherlands' African descendants? So, I mean, that's a range because uh, similar 
to the U.S. when folks were enslaved in Suriname and throughout the Caribbean. They were coming from a number of parts of the continent. Uh, the most common story that's told, I say it's a story because I've seen counter evidence, but or, or the most common place uh, where Africans were taken between Suriname, uh, taken to Suriname, uh, they came from Ghana. So many Surinamese people feel a strong affinity to Ghana uh, and uh, Ghanaian ancestry. And even you see evidence of similarities uh, between the Maroon languages in Suriname and Ghanaian languages. So um, I would say that's the, the strongest link. And obviously the Dutch had a very strong presence uh, with colonialism uh, on the continent and the slave trade. They set up the fort in Ghana. So that makes a lot of sense, although they didn't exclusively come from Ghana. So I just want to be clear about that. Right, right. Well, Dana, I want to just thank you so much for coming on tonight and to share with us your vision, share with us what you're planning on doing. We simply need to talk more about this. What can we do in the classrooms? What can we do to motivate young people? And if this is the way we need to go, then this is what we should do. So thank you so much. And everyone else, I want to thank you for joining us tonight. And please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Dana. Thanks, Bernice.